Stewart Observatory on a beautiful autumn evening in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, my name is Tom Fleming. I'm your host. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, which was started in 1922 by Professor A.E. Douglas. And we're happy to say that we've continued every year, just about, uh, giving public evening lectures since 1922. And we welcome those of you watching this podcast, streaming at uh, www.as.arizona.edu, or watching the podcast at iTunes U, the University of Arizona page. So we welcome all of you, especially our friends in Kansas City, because they're very happy. They now have the world champion baseball team. We do that. The, the uh, Kansas City Astronomical Society watches our podcasts religiously. So I'm shouting out to them. I think that's what that's called. Um, before we introduce tonight's speaker, uh, first of all, I'd like to remind you that we've got four more, three more presentations uh, this semester. This is the fourth one. Uh, so two weeks from tonight, two weeks after that, and then the very next Monday after that. So the rest of our lectures are on Monday evenings. And I'd like to also point out that our next two lectures will actually be book signings. We have two authors coming. In two weeks, we have Jeff Bennett from Colorado, has a book, What is Relativity? Celebrating the 100th anniversary of Einstein's general theory of relativity. And then four weeks from tonight, on the 30th of November, we will have uh, Dr. Steve Strong, who is a retired astronomer from Kitt Peak National Observatory, but he has a book out on his photography. And it's going to be about astronomy and photography, and he'll have books to sell. So we will have book signings after the lecture with refreshments out in the lobby two weeks from tonight, four weeks from tonight. And then on December 7th, our friend Mark Sykes will be back. And we're going to see the latest pictures from Pluto and from Ceres. So, and I got you a string theorist. For, I'm not joking. For next January, I already have set up our first talk in January. It's going to be a string theorist from Harvard. Okay, He's going to talk about string theory. Uh, for those of you who are students here for an assignment, I will stamp your assignments at the end of tonight's lecture down at this table. And it's a beautiful night. It's clear the telescope is open. If you are new to our public evening lecture series and would like to be on our mailing list, there is at the back of the room on that table a sign-up sheet. Leave us your email address, and we'll make sure that you get uh, emails on the latest schedule of talks and other events here at Stewart Observatory. Make sure you pick up one of these. That's the schedule. All right. So I was just saying earlier before the show, it's been a while since we've had a talk on pseudoscience. Because I like to have a mixture of things, not just hardcore astrophysics, observational astronomy, some theory, history of astronomy, but we also from time to time also like to talk about things that might seem scientific but really aren't. And uh, I think the last time we had such a lecture was in 2012 for the Mayan calendar. So tonight we are pleased to present our, well he's the gentleman who teaches the history of astronomy class here at our department, uh, Professor Michael Chris. Uh, you may remember Michael's lecture from last spring about Galileo, the crime of Galileo. Michael received the, his bachelor's degree in astronomy right here at the University of Arizona in 1957. He then received the first graduate degree awarded by our department, a master's degree, in 1959. When Michael went to school, he was just that white building. 
And he also gave a Stewart Public Evening Lecture in 1957. <laughs> in that white building, the ground floor, that's, was, that doubled as the classroom in the main lobby. And uh, he's here tonight, now that he, he was a professor at San Mateo Co College, right? Director of their planetarium in California. But he's retired now. He's moved back to Tucson. And he, uh, we, we hire him uh, from time to time to teach some of our courses. He's an old-time steward guy. And he's here to tell us about Scientists in Wonderland, the strange case of Dr. Velikovsky. Professor Chris. Thank you, Tom. Everybody can hear me OK? I guess I should walk like this after that introduction. I'm an old guy. <laughs> well, I'm the speaker. That's how you know. Um, I'm very happy to be here tonight. The Stewart Observatory, as you, as you can easily imagine, is very dear to me. And uh, to be here, um, after having an entire career, wherever it was, many different places, and to be back here is just wonderful for me. Tonight, I'm going to speak about something that, um, well, it's not the latest thing in astronomy, let's put it like that. And when I heard about the speakers uh, who are coming in the next few weeks, month, uh, this is a very different kind of topic. It is a top, just before I begin, by a show of hands, how many know this name, Velikovsky, from, okay, how many don't, because, yeah. Well, there was a time in the United States that it would be impossible for you not to know the name Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky. He was front page stuff. The year was 1950. In that year, a fantastical book was published with an astronomical theme. The book had more than an astronomical theme. It had a biblical theme as well. So tonight's story is science and religion and how it gets presented to the public. And tonight's story is very different from the story I gave um, last year on the crime of Galileo. But it's a similar story. Just it fits into 1950 and what we were like in 1950. When the book came out, the book was called Worlds in Collision, one of many books which he was to write after that. It was not very well received by astronomers. Worse than not being well received for the astronomers, 
was they did some things that, in retrospect, they shouldn't have done. And what made it worse for the astronomers is that the book was very well received by the entire United States, and not just our country also. It went to the bestseller on the New York Times list and stayed there for the better part of a year. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who bought it read it. It's one of those science books that sell a lot, but not everybody reads it. But you didn't have to read the book to know about it because it was front page stuff. It was a cause celeb. And people were talking about it. When the book came out, I myself was in high school in Phoenix. And I was interested in astronomy from a very early age, and I certainly was at that time also. And so I heard about the book from the newspaper, Phoenix Gazette, I think it was. And I went to the library to get it, but they, they had one copy, and there were like 300,000 people ahead of me. So I never got to read it. That's OK. I went on to get degrees in astronomy, and I have a career in astronomy, and I heard more about that book that I wasn't able to read, more than I, I thought I wanted to. Then on the other hand, I found it was a very interesting topic. There was one time, one year, I was a graduate student, I was at Berkeley, and I had a lunch table with other graduate students, and they weren't all from ast astronomy. As a matter of fact, I had switched to the history of science at that point. And we used to meet, for anyone who's from Berkeley, at Val's on North Campus, pizza place. And we would have discussions, like graduate students have. And one person, a graduate student in social sciences, mentioned to me, what do you know about Velikovsky? And I didn't know hardly anything, but I knew the name, and I knew the topic. And I said, well, I don't think too much about him. And he tore into me because it was a really hot topic in his department. And they were claiming at that time that astronomers were in some kind of league against this poor fellow, Velikovsky, and there was a cabal against him. And I said, I wasn't aware of that. But we all agreed, the other people at the table said, why don't you two have a debate about two months from now so you can both prepare what you want to say. And that's how I got into Velikovsky. And tonight, you're going to hear something about it. Let's set the scene. Uh, not the scene for Velikovsky. Let's just set the scene about science. Because this isn't the first time that there would be a controversy in science. And when I say a controversy, uh, a controversy which involved many non-scientists. Uh, Galileo would be an example of what I mean. Some of these controversies uh, don't involve sciences, scientists at all. They're hoaxes. Uh, I'm sure with an internet now, you've seen many such hoaxes, some of which you might not have known was a hoax when you first saw it because 
your field of, of expertise is not there. But you soon came to realize, this looks strange. They the pictures came back from Pluto, and they found people there. <laughs> and Elvis. And things like that. OK, that does sound ridiculous, but suppose, suppose it didn't sound ridiculous. Suppose it really was a hoax. Well, I've had a career in astronomy, and I've had a lifetime of hoaxes. And people would come up to me, and they would say things to me like, why don't you believe in a astro astrology, Professor Chris? These would be my students. And I know I'm only going to have 20 seconds of their time. And I say, well, you know, I'm a Capricorn, and Capricorns don't believe in astrology. <laughs> and then I smile, of course. So let's just have a look at other similar kinds of things before we get into the Velikovsky business. This is a uh, natal or birth horoscope for um, Madonna. Um, she must have been pretty young when that picture was taken. She still looks terrific, right? Um, anyway, so that's what a horoscope looks like. And according to astrologers, this means something about um, Madonna, but I, I couldn't explain that to you, and that's not my purpose in being here tonight. I'm just giving you examples of things that somebody in science, and in this case in the field of astronomy, uh, gets asked about, and, um, ex and we're expected to have an opinion about it. I don't have an opinion about everything I'm asked about, but that's okay. Uh, that's just fine with me. Uh, let's go back in time to... Um, 1557, and here's a book that came out. And these are the prophecies of Nostradamus, who seems to know, well, he, he, uh, he makes the circuits even today, right? Becomes popular, then nobody talks about him. And then when there's nothing else going on, he's popular again. Let's see one thing he says. I picked out one thing that gives you an idea of what we're talking about in the case of him. Uh, he, he wrote this in the French of his day, there it is, and um, here is an English translation at the bottom. Uh, the translation, it, it's in a book uh, by a person who is um, very favorable toward Nostradamus. And it says, the beasts wild with hunger will cross the rivers, and the greater part of the battle will be against Hitler. You mean Nostradamus knew about Hitler? Well, it said so. Uh, look at the word up there at the top in green, Hister. See it in the second line. That's being translated as Hitler. He will cause great men to be dragged in a cage of iron when the son of Germany obeys no law. What does that mean? Um, well, it's hard to know. You can read into it things that you want to read into it, let's have another translation. Somebody else who's writing a book which isn't favorable toward Nostradamus. Same, same line. Beasts ferocious with hunger will swim across the rivers. The greater part of the region will be against the Hister, which is the name of a river. And the great one will cause it to be dragged in an iron cage, and the German child will observe nothing. 
what really does it mean? Well, I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that periodically, and remember, he's uh, 1557, uh, comes to us for consideration across the years. Let's pick another example. Oh, I, here I'm just comparing the two, two different versions so you can see them side by side. I don't even know what the first one means. I recognize the name Hitler, but I, I, I don't know what the rest of it means. All right, the pyramids are always great fun for study, and everybody's interested in the pyramids. So there they are. It looks like it came from a postcard. Let's take the Great Pyramid of Cheops. Now, you can actually go into that pyramid, and you can go up the grand stairway, and it's standing, it's standing room. So you don't have to bend over when you go up there. You'll end up in the middle of the pyramid. And there are the various parts of the pyramid that are named. And we're going to look at this part as you ascend up the grand, the grand staircase. Now, I have seen, there are books and I have seen TV pro pro programs and some of them even on, is it the Discovery Channel that sometimes puts this on? Do I have that right? Here's what I saw one time. This is someone who um, has measured these things and said using, measuring them in something called a pyramid inch. What's a pyramid inch? Uh, well, if you go around the base of the pyramid, there are four sides to it, measuring it in any unit you want, and you will find out that if you divide that by the number of days in the year, 365.24, you get a pyramid inch. Now, if you use the pyramid inch to measure everything inside, having to fight, and it's about an inch. I mean, it, it was called an inch because it, it looks like it's about an inch. When you measure things along the grand staircase, the grand gallery, you find that at certain points in the gallery, if you write down how many inches you've measured from the beginning, you find certain dates in history, if you interpret them according to dates, and they are related to the Bible. And here it is laid out for you. So when they built the pyramids, they had Christianity in mind, according to this interpretation. There's even a, it's, as a pseudoscience, it's called, it even has a name, pyramidology. And there's lots of stuff that's written about it. And like all of this stuff, it makes for a fascinating read. And what you think of it, well, you'll have to see for yourself. Let's come forward to 1926 in Dayton, Tennessee. And a trial will be uh, going on, called the Scopes Trial, of course. And it's about a high school teacher who taught evolution. We have some high school people here with us today. I think you're over there, right? What do they teach in biology? 
Go, go ahead. I want to hear it. It's okay. <laughs> uh, well, there was a trial in uh, 1926, and the high school teacher was accused of teaching evolution, and, and he did it on purpose because he wanted to challenge the law that said he couldn't. And so they arrested him. His name was Scopes. So it's called the Scopes Trial. And he was defended by a very famous lawyer of that day, uh, um, Clarence Darrow. And he was found guilty and was fined $100. And then they changed the law. Because the prosecution against him looked absolutely silly. And I guess they, um, I, are the angels coming for me? I keep hearing. <laughs> What's going on? I'm not ready yet. Got to finish the lecture. <laughs> um, okay, that wasn't astronomy, but if you were a scientist, especially if you were a biologist, and we still get that, we still get that, and there are, there are a number of states today, <laughs> today, We've just gone past Pluto, but there are some states where you can't really teach evolution without teaching anti-evolution, as if there were such a thing. But have, apparently there is, and you have to teach it. Then in 1911, here, this is a hoax. Um, it's called the Piltdown Man. It was in England. Piltdown is a location. And somebody put, to, I forget the whole story of it, but somebody put together uh, an early man, quote unquote, early man, made of different parts, bones from here and there. And it fooled <laughs> the anthropologists at that time. Um, not completely, they, there's something fishy about this, but it wasn't until 1953 that the hoax was revealed. And I remember, I was in, high, in 1953 I was here, but I remember the newspapers said, hoax revealed, scientists wrong again. And that's going to fit in with tonight's story about Velikovsky, that attitude, gotcha. Let's go back even earlier to um, the, uh, the New York, I think it was a Herald, and the year was um, 1853. And there was a story in it, it was a, a slow news day. And there were like six dozen papers in New York City at the time competing with each other. And to boost the circulation of this paper, they put in a story that an astronomer with a famous name, Herschel at that time, the son of the discoverer of uh, Uranus, uh, John Herschel we're talking about now, uh, that he had, uh, with a new te uh, telescope that he was using, he had found people on the moon. And he described them. And, and the artist for the, uh, for the newspaper, um, the New York Sun, uh, I thought I had a slide of the New York Sun, I, the New York Sun showed the people what they looked like. And this was all made up. But it's all newspapers. And it just so happens that John Herschel, who was in South Africa at the time, and didn't even hear about this until like a half year later, 
And he thought it was jolly good fun, no doubt. But uh, he, he said, no, I, I never said this. I never found anything like that. That's OK. The papers were sold by that time. And then the full story came out. And so you sell more newspapers. So it was a hoax. And the slide you're looking at now is a hoax. Well, it was a radio drama, right? Uh, radio drama, drama of H.G. Wells and a very young, 19, uh, 23 years old at the time, Orson Welles, at the beginning of his career, sort of, he made the famous Halloween Eve broadcast of the War of the Worlds, and he made it sound like newscasts, uh, which were coming over. People heard, this was the time of the Munich Conference, and people would hear shortwave type reception with static and everything from Munich. And so he just copied that style when he presented this radio show about Mars, Martians, invading the Earth. Scared the pajazzes out of people. Hoax. The next day when the newspapers asked uh, Mr. Wells, uh, was that your intention to fool people? He said, oh, well, no, I'm really quite sorry. It was just a drama and so on. But boy, was he happy. He had a full career ahead of him. And I was looking at the internet, it was just a couple of months ago, and I saw this. The world will not end next month, NASA said. I said, what the hell is this? <laughs> I mean, what kind of news is that? It, it, this won't happen, okay? <laughs> well, I put the date, it's in the upper uh, left-hand corner, and I'm trying to read it here. It was uh, this summer, August, in August it came out. And then when an internet room I'm reading now, uh, that a large space rock is going to slam into the Earth. Oh, I never heard about it, but apparently enough people did and were asking NASA about it that they had to issue a denial. Well, it didn't happen. We're here. I, otherwise, I wouldn't be giving the lecture, right? In um, 2003, was it? Um, yeah, 2003. The Earth and Mars were particularly close together as the Earth was passing Mars, we in our orbit, Mars in its orbit. And um, an email went around that said that Mars will be as large as the full moon. Don't miss it. And it has to be on that particular night. Uh, I have no idea where the hoax came from. I, th I think where it might have originated is some astronomers said that looking through a powerful telescope, not that powerful, but powerful enough, Mars can be seen at that time to be as large as the full moon looks to the naked eye. That doesn't sound like such a good internet message. And here's the way it came out. And sure enough, I was asked about it, where I, I was living at the time, and I said, no, it couldn't be. It couldn't be. I, I, it's got to be a hoax. But they looked at me as if I was nuts. When the Earth passed Mars again, the next time around, the same email came out. <laughs> Good hoaxes never die. And when we first took pictures of Mars, I can see by your reaction, many of you remember this one, when we first took compared to today, really wretched pictures 
but this was state state of the art at the time. Uh, this face on Mars was front page stuff, and NASA said, "No, no, they somebody doctored up the picture. I mean, uh, they made it look like there is a face." And then to prove it, NASA took another picture from a satellite going around Mars at another time when the sun angle was different, and that's what it looks like with a different sun angle. But by that time, of course, the newspapers have been sold, the internets have been abuzz with it. This is the kind of thing that goes on all the time. Oh, what's a poor man to do? Well, it's fun, unless it isn't fun. Because I think, I think a number of things when these things happen, but I wonder, these people who believe this kind of stuff, and um, I hope I'm not offending anyone, it's the kind of stuff that's in, uh, in the Weekly World News, uh, the Inquirer, you know, the tabloids. I think to myself, you know, those people, they have the same vote I do. I should have more. <laughs> but I always think that. <laughs> and I'm not even going to get into flying saucers. It's a genuine picture, you know. Somebody took it. I don't know. <laughs> the UFO stories, they began in newspapers uh, calling them UFOs in 1947. So just right after World War II. And um, they don't go away, of course. And of course, they get more sophisticated because we know a lot more. In fact, people who spread stories like this around will take a very good NASA photograph and then put a different interpretation on it. And then put the caption, NASA photograph. Now let's go back a thousand years. This is the Bayeux Tapestry. Um, it has to do with the conquering of England by William the Conqueror in 1066. And the tapestry uh, is in France. And what it's, it's really an embroidery is what it is, about this wide and very long. It would fit all around this room if you ran it along the walls. And what it shows in this cartoon fashion is how Harold, the King of England, died and was replaced by William the Conqueror. That's why he's called the Conqueror. At any rate, in the tapestry, at the very top of it, you see uh, something there, whatever it is, something in the sky. It says, Isti Mirant Stella, Stella star. And here they are admiring the star. What star? Well, it was Halley's Comet. I realize that doesn't look like a comet, but it's embroidery, so you know, give them a little slack. Um, it was Halley's Comet that was appearing in the sky at the time that William was conquering England. And so that's going to appear in it. You see the cartoon in this part of the tapestry. It shows somebody is giving the news to poor Harold. You see his name is there. And he's listening and he says, it's what? What does it mean? And he's, he's not going to like the news. All right, comets have always frightened people, so there are going to be a lot of stories about them. Uh, here is a comet from um, uh, 1630. This pamphlet came out. Uh, 1680, rather. 1680. Um, 
and uh, an alarm is being spread to Europe, according to the pamphlet, uh, because comets always mean doom, destruction, nothing good. Well, comets are delightful when one appears in the sky. I hope you've all had an opportunity to see. The last really bright one was uh, Hale-Bopp. So everybody should have seen that. Even the young people, maybe, with us tonight. Maybe. Um, but at this time, in fact, up until Halley showed that comets were really something, he didn't know what, in orbit around the sun, and could be predicted as to when you'll see them in the sky, uh, people were afraid every time they came. In fact, one, one year, this is decades ago, I came out from uh, working that day, teaching astronomy. That's what I do for work. And, um, and I found uh, a pamphlet. Is that the one? Yeah, that's not the one. This pamphlet. Stuck in the windshield, you know, under the uh, wiper blade of my car. Now, there was a comet in the sky then. It was uh, Comet Kohutek. So the year was 1970-something. And um, this was stuck in the windshield of my car and all the other cars. I mean, they didn't know that an astronomer owns this car. So we'll put it in his windshield. Uh, so I read it. I said, great comet. Well. I guess they're talking about the one that's in the newspaper. 40 days. I don't know what that meant, but the comet was getting closer to us at the time. And the Neva shall be destroyed. Well, I lived in San Mateo, so I guess I was safe. <laughs> and then they had a picture of its orbit there. I said, well, that's a pretty good picture. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, with some accuracy, that was the orbit. And the orbit of the Earth, I said, I'm sure they don't have an astronomer on their staff. But then I remembered, well, that same diagram appeared in the newspaper, in more than one newspaper. So they just simply just copied it. And I don't know if they were disappointed or not when the 40 days came and went and they were still there. Oh, well, we'll have to get on with life somehow. All right, as you see, a lot of things happened that seemed to be science, quote unquote but turn out not to be. Turn out to be about something that scientists, after they examine it, they say it isn't what people are saying it is. And some of these things we hear again and again, like that Mars hoax, that when you hear it the hundredth time, you say, I'm not going to even look into it this time. Because you're tired of it. But that doesn't get you a good rep. Because people say, look, Here's a scientist, and he won't even listen to me. He won't even hear what I have to say. Well, I've heard it before, of course, at least I think I have, enough that I don't want to hear something like it again. So I get impatient. That's a kind of, as a human being, that's a typical reaction. And that can be held against you if somebody wants to hold something against you. So, when Velikovsky's book came out, here were some of the things that were concerning our society at the time. 19, the book came out in 1950. 1949, the year before, uh, Chairman Mao finally succeeded in the revolution in China and established 
the communist government. The word communism in 1949 and in the 50s was a frightening word. Maybe some people still are. It's a way to get people afraid by holding this threat. Well, here's what it looked like in 19... Uh, this pamphlet came out, I don't know, probably in 1949. Then in 1950, the North Koreans invaded South Korea. And the Korean War was a result of that for us. And this is frightening because we as a society felt threatened. And you'd think we might want to turn to science to tell us the truth, not about this headline, I mean, this is what happened, but things that were science in nature, you think that people would want to hear what scientists said. Think again. In 1949, the Soviets exploded their first atomic bomb and the threat of nuclear war was starting to be talked about. J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the head of the Manhattan Project that produced the atomic bomb that was bombs that were used against Japan at the end of the war, he was frightened. He was frightened by what we had unleashed. So frightened that when the idea was suggested that we can build an even more powerful bomb, what we call a hydrogen bomb today, they called it a super then. He said, I want no part of this. I think we have enough destruction. We probably had 200 atomic bombs, which are uranium bombs. We, we had about 200 at the time. He said, that's enough. And he wanted no part of it, for which he was accused of being a crypto-communist. His adversary, he was put on trial for this by the Atomic Energy Agency. And the main scientist who spoke against him was this man here on the right, Edward Teller, who was also called the father of the hydrogen bomb because he was the one who became in charge of that project at that point. And it isn't that Teller said that Robert Oppenheimer was a communist. What Teller did say was, I'd feel more comfortable if the atomic program in the United States were not in his hands. 1953. What else was going on? Signs like this started to appear. Fallout shelters, duck and cover TV things, how you can survive an atomic war. And we found, quote unquote, two spies. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were put on trial. They, they, the husband, at least, had worked uh, on the Manhattan pro pro Project in a minor way. But he was accused of being a spy, and his wife, too. And they were executed, 1953. And the senator, Joseph R. McCarthy, could be heard, and by this time seen on TV, 
claiming that in the hearings he held, you're seeing one here, claiming that in holding up in this briefcase here, I have, how many did he say? I have the names of 205 spies and traitors in the State Department. Harry Truman was the president at that time. Harry Truman, when he heard this statement from McCarthy, said, the only thing the senator has in that bulging briefcase of his is a bottle of booze. <laughs> uh, McCarthy was known to be a drinker. He died, in fact, of um, cirrhosis of the liver, I think, uh, two years, no, th three years after this. So this is what it was like to be in the United States at the time the Velikovsky book came out. You say, well, what has all this got to do with Velikovsky? People wanted to turn away from the status quo. <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. And Truman wasn't going to run again. He could have, but he, uh, he legally could, could have. But he, he wasn't going to do that. And people, the slogan was, I like Ike. And Eisenhower, a uh, very famous man, general of all the armies in Europe in World War II, um, was elected the president. And people felt much better. Ike will protect us against all these fears. What fears? Rot in our government, atomic war, things that science had done that was threatening us, the atomic scientists I'm talking about. So it's no surprise that on TV, one of the popular programs was a program featuring Fulton J. Sheen, had a weekly program called Life is Worth Living. It wasn't a bad program, I remember it. Uh, it made people feel good. People tuned into this religious program in prime time. What do we have in prime time now? Something to do with Donald Trump, I think. <laughs> and popular entertainment would include the weekly on TV, uh, Lucky Strike Hour, featuring um, Giselle McKenzie, and I think her male singing partner was Snooky Lanson. Snooky Lanson. It was a kindler, gentler time. People liked it. It appealed to them. They liked songs. This one comes from the Lucky Strike program. Let's go to church next Sunday morning. Let's kneel and pray side by side. But times they were a-changing. Same year. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans. Way back up in the woods Chuck Berry, of course. And Elvis Presley on the right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> um, this was what it was like in the United States 
in our society when Velikovsky's book came out. Let's get to that book. It featured a colossal comet. Worlds in collision had to do with the planets colliding with each other. And it had to do with one of the planets being a comet at that time. Where did he get all this stuff? Well, here's what he looks like. Um, he was born in uh, Russia, or the Soviet, well, which became, it was Russia when he was born. He got a medical degree, an MD degree at uh, University of St. Petersburg. He studied under Freud. He became a psychiatrist. We're not dealing with just any old bloke now. We're dealing with a rather formidable person. He went to Israel in the 30s because he was interested in biblical studies. And he got the impression from his studies in Israel that things that were mentioned in the Old Testament, some of them, actually happened. And to build up the evidence for this, he then went to New York City around 1940. When the war began, he stayed in the United States. And for the next 10 years, until the book came out in 1950, in his own words, I spent that decade opening and closing the library at Columbia University, getting the evidence. What was the evidence? Well, he was looking at scrolls like this. This is a biblical scroll, but there are also scrolls that seem to have to do with astronomy. At least they have astronomical observations uh, among whatever else it might say. And he was looking for the evidence that would show that his hunch was right. And by 1949, he had it. According to Velikovsky, Two planets in the sky now, and here's a picture of them, forget the moon. This is over Los Angeles. The brighter one is Venus, and the dimmer one, and it isn't really dim, is uh, Jupiter. He said Venus didn't exist at the time that the Old Testament was written. So Venus, well, where did it come from? Well, Jupiter, you all recognize this as a picture of Jupiter. And Jupiter has the great red spot. Uh, first person to see it was uh, Galileo, I think. Uh, so that's a long time ago. And it's been there ever since. And Velikovsky looked at that, and he came up with the idea that that great red spot is what was left behind when Jupiter ejected what became a colossal comet heading toward the sun. What was he doing talking about astronomy? He wasn't. He was talking about his interest in biblical studies, of which he apparently knew a lot, and trying to find astronomical evidence to show that those stories were correct in the Bible. Well, his astronomy is not too good, but that's what he said. Here is an orbit of uh, a comet. There are the orbits of the planets. And that comet is Halley's Comet. Uh, but it, 
Cometary orbits are all something like this, uh, elongated ellipses. And they go around the sun, as the planets do. And when a comet comes near the Earth, you see it in the sky, if it's a large enough comet and close enough to the Earth. And um, according to Velikovsky, this is, came from Jupiter. It's a comet that will settle down, his words, to become the planet Venus, which wasn't known, according to Velikovsky, at that time. The comet passed the Earth a number of, of passes. And the first pass came at the time that Moses was facing the Red Sea with all those people behind him. And they had to get across. And Moses parted the Red Sea. That's in the Bible, of course, Old, Old Testament. But what Velikovsky said is, no, that was the gravitational effect of this comet that was passing near the Earth at exactly that time. And so the Red Sea parted, the Israelites crossed, and the Egyptians, of course, came a little bit too late for that. The comet was moving on. There, the, is that Charlton Heston? <laughs> well, it's, it's Moses. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Um, Then, of course, as they were wandering around uh, the Sinai, uh, manna, bread, something like that, manna, fell from the heavens to feed the Israelites. So here, here you see that. And what was this manna? It was the residue of that comet that had passed by. Velikovsky had heard that comets have hydrocarbons in them. And in his mind, hydrocarbons and carbohydrates are, they sound the same. This is in his book, by the way, <laughs> World in Collision. Uh, so that's how the Israelites would have been fed by the comet. And on another pass, the comet didn't settle down yet. It came past the Earth at just the right time for Joshua to lift up his arms and say, son, stand thou still, or whatever Joshua said. And um, that was the comet that stopped the Earth from rotating on its axis at that time. I don't know how astronomical this sounds to all of you, but it sounded pretty good to the people of that day. Not the astronomers, of course, but the other people. Here's a picture of Venus, one of the earlier space pictures from a, uh, a uh, spacecraft that went by Venus. So that was a comet, and it, how it came to be Venus uh, settled down. He said it settled down. Of course, you know, in astronomy, you would have to show the orbit dynamics of how that could happen, how it can come out from Jupiter, pass the Earth, swing around, come back when Joshua is there, and then settle down. All of that is, those are words that need explanations if you're an astronomer. Uh, Velikovsky wasn't bothered by that. So he wrote 
his theories, which I've quickly have described to you tonight. And the book Worlds in Collision was published. Before the book came out, the book came out in uh, April of 1950, but before it came out, uh, Velikovsky had a wonderful uh, publicity campaign, not of his design, by the way, uh, but he was interviewed by Harper's. He, of course, made his presence known that this would be a good story. And so here in the January 1950 edition of Harper's Magazine, the day that the sun stood still. And it was introducing in this story, written by their jazz editor, the story gets better and better. The jazz, they didn't have a science editor, I guess. But he was, Eric Larrabee was his name. He was the jazz editor and the literary editor. And uh, he wrote the story. So people were reading Harper's. And starting around then, people were asking astronomers, what is all this? And astronomers hadn't heard anything about it, of course. Um, but they soon found out about it. And it started to appear in the magazines of that day. You see some of them here. And it started to be talked about by everyone. It hit the newspapers. Then this guy, he's an astronomer. Well, he was the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Uh, he had that job as a director for only a few years. He got it because the previous director had got involved with government defense work. Uh, his name was Gordon Atwater. He was a lecturer at the Hayden Planetarium. He became the director. And here's his statement. He said that, Atwater said that, this looks like a, well, at the very least, he must have said to himself, this looks like a damn good planetarium show. It'll really get the people in. But I, I have no reason to think that he didn't think that this was a very good theory. And he was in the process, he said, of making a planetarium show about it. And it was at that point that he was fired. The book came out, and here is one of the advertisements. The book was published by, or was to be published by, Macmillan and Company. And here was their advertisement. Is it true? Well, the answer, whenever I see something like that, I say, no. <laughs> uh, it should have said, it's really true, folks, and then made the statement. But is it true? OK. That's kind of weasel wording out of it. The thing is, the astronomers knew very well who Velikovsky was by this point, And the astronomers were publishing textbooks with Macmillan. And the head of the, um, uh, the astronomy department at Harvard was Harlow Shapley. You'll see his picture in a minute. But he said, you know, folks, to his staff, he said, we've got to say something. We can't let this respectable publisher, Macmillan, that publishes our stuff, publish this junk. Makes us look bad. And so they put pressure on Macmillan. And Macmillan found it expedient to give the contract over to a subsidiary of theirs called Doubleday. Doubleday didn't publish astronomy textbooks, so that was OK. 
And uh, here's what their advertisement looked like. Stupendous panorama of terrestrial and human history. Well, it's terrific. You, this is what I saw as a kid. You've got to read this stuff. And then there are the testimonies of all these people that are under it. No astronomers. So what, who, who would, te who would te testify? Uh, famous names, Norman Vincent Peale, for one. And that's what the book looks like. Okay, how do the scientists react with all of this? Tom, where are you, Tom? Tom, I, I'm looking at my clock. I need 10 minutes. Okay, okay, folks? I always do this. Even in the class I teach, ask my students. But I let them go because I have another class to get to. Uh, how do the scientists react to all of this? Well, uh, this is an early edition of Time from the 20s, but it has a picture of Harlow Shapley, Harlow Shapley. Uh, and by the time of Velikovsky, uh, Shapley was the director, uh, the head of the astronomy department at Harvard. That's what he looks like. And he talked to the people on his staff about the book, Shapley had a reputation well established at this time. This is the globular clustering you're looking at. And that's what Shapley studied when he was a younger man. And he found certain kinds of variable stars in them. And using these variable stars, he was able to map out the dimensions of the galaxy we live in. For the first time, we knew we were living in a galaxy. And we knew how big it was across, thanks to those variable stars. That's where Shapley made his fame. And here's a letter he wrote to Macmillan. There is an implication, if you're Macmillan, that we can't throw this letter away, that there's going to be repercussions. And we have pretty good contracts with the astronomers, a lot of them at Harvard. And other astronomers would be concerned, too. And that's why they gave it over to Doubleday. And what was the reaction from everybody else at looking at this spectacle going on by this time in the newspapers? Well, uh, Harper's said, well, they, of course, had another article to, to write. And this time they talked about the astronomers versus Velikovsky. And Velikovsky, a uh, dignified figure, with a science background, not in astronomy, but a science background. Um, and they're going to take the side of, Vel of Velikovsky, of course. Velikovsky and Harper's, in particular, likened this, what was going on, is to Galileo's fight with the church. That's, that's a cheap shot. It, it, it doesn't stand up. Galileo first of all, was an astronomer. But besides the point, Galileo was forbidden under pain of death, heresy, from publishing or even talking about the theory that the Earth goes around the sun. With the entire church and the society, of course, that it represents to back them up. Galileo was silenced. Velikovsky, he could write anything he wanted. It's true he would be attacked by, and was, by the astronomers. Who the hell listens to astronomers? 
It's, it isn't the same. But Harper's claimed it was. Let's have a look at this fellow, Velikovsky. Velikovsky would, uh, Tom, you know, just click it. Right there. And if I trans transgress Here and he went talking into to students. many fields of science and humanities, it was not because I was born a rebel. I was coerced to trespass. The belief that we are living in an orderly universe that nothing happened to this earth and the other planets since the beginning. That nothing will happen till the end. Is a wishful thinking that fills the textbooks and your textbooks are still of Victorian vintage. And this is my call to you today, to this generation. My work is not finished. I do not expect to return here in another 19 years. It is in your hands. It is to you to decide whether you wish to repeat what you were taught and look back for the authorities, or you wish to be authorities yourself. So be courageous. And don't be afraid. And thank you. Velikovsky was to spend the next 20 years of his life giving talks like that, particularly to young people who he said, what I need is a new gen generation. The old, pe the old established people will not listen to me. I need young people who are not committed yet. And he gave all these talks. A psychological magazine, American Behavioral Scientist, started to get interested in this, and they accused the Harvard astronomers, and Shapley in particular, as being part of a left-wing network. This is in the 1970s, and communism is still a buzzword. A left-wing network. The students themselves put out magazines, the one on the right, Ponce, Students at the University of Oregon put that out for 10, 10 issues, defending Velikovsky. The 70s, the love generation, the people who said at that time, those of you who remember the election of that time, come clean for Gene, Gene McCarthy. Put away your drugs, your marijuana. Come clean, vote for Gene, that kind of thing. These are the students who put out that magazine. Kronos was actually put out by people who worked for Velikovsky and, and were committed to advancing his ideas. Another generation of astronomers started to write back. Now we're in the second generation of this, quote, controversy. And finally, in 1974 in San Francisco, Carl Sagan, who was pretty famous by that time, Carl Sagan said, you know, Velikovsky says he's never had his day in court. He's never been able to present his ideas to a scientific forum. Let's do that. And in 1974, that happened. I went there. I lived in the Bay Area. 
and it was electric. Uh, Velikovsky would be able to explain to scientists, oh, AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science. And this was a, their annual convention. And Velikovsky went there. Here's Carl Sagan and Emmanuel Velikovsky. And they would come head to head. There were other speakers there, too. But it really became Velikovsky versus Sagan. And Sagan, with that gifted tongue of his, why not? Well, one of the other scientists who was there was from Switzerland, a Peter Huber, who was an expert in Babylonia history. And Huber got up and he said, you know, we have Babylonian records that go back before biblical times, back before the Old Testament stories. And in these Babylonian scripts, which he could read, he said, Venus is mentioned and observed. <laughs> and yet, according to Velikovsky, Venus didn't exist. It was still inside Jupiter at that time. And Velikovsky came up. Huber was at the microphone. And Velikovsky came up from where he was seated at the side and came over and sort of, Velikovsky was this tall, and he sort of pushed Huber, who was this tall, out of the way. And he said into the microphone while looking at Huber, do you speak Babylonian? Well, nobody speaks Babylonian. It's a dead language. We don't know what it sounds like. Oh, Huber had to say no. Then why are you telling, etc. So that's the kind of a day that was. <laughs> All right, Velikovsky continued to put out book after book. Scientists put out book after book. <laughs> this fellow here, Leroy Ellenberger, on the left in 1978, a student at the time, a very close associate to defending, to Velikovsky, who you see there, and, and who defended him. He grew up um, uh, Ellenberger to be a medical scientist. There you see him more recently. And the thing that is astonishing is that in the 1990s, Ellenberger did a flip and said Velikovsky is wrong. This is quite something to see. The drama continues. Ellenberger is still writing stuff. I'm on his email list, so when I get an email from Ellenberger, oh God, more to read. There are other things going on too at the time that people were, they, they sell. The newspaper sells, the paperbacks sell. It was only a few years ago. That was based on the Mayan calendar. We're still here. And how about other things that make scientific claims? You don't see those anymore. Or vaccinations, which is still in the news. In fact, I think uh, Dr. Ben Carson had something to say about that a month or two ago. 
or maybe much more important to us, is this, quote, controversy, which is not a controversy, but is made to seem like one. So what does it all mean? Where do you look for the truth if you don't know? How do you know what to believe? In this trial of Galileo, the church would say, if you want the truth, read this Bible and interpret it correctly, of course, which they were doing, they claim. Galileo was saying, if you want the truth at that time, he was saying, read the book of nature and interpret it correctly, which he felt he was doing. Is it really just two blokes arguing with each other? Is that how you find the truth? Your opinion is as good as my opinion? We're made to think that that might be. Well, let's hear from the other side on the 6 o'clock news. Let's hear the opposite point of view. The anti-Darwin view. The pro-UFO view. How do, we, how do we know what to believe? Well, we do have something in science called the scientific method, which is a way of thinking about things. I hope you can all read the caption. <laughs> the first step toward enlightenment is disillusionment. <laughs> Carl Sagan said it very well. Anyone who comes with an extraordinary claim that he wants other people to believe must have extraordinary evidence to back it up. That's how you win that, that argument, with the extraordinary evidence. And we have, as Carl said, we have science to guide us. He said, we're all in the dark. We're not gods. We're people. But the only thing we have to guide us, really, is this thing we call science. Science is like a candle in the dark. And if we ignore that candle, if we put it out, we will suffer the consequences. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. Since we're running a little late, I'm going to dispense with questions, but I'm sure that Professor Chris would be happy to chat with any of you and answer any questions you might have. Some of our, our I know the students want to get to the telescope. So the telescope is open. It's the big white building. Show you where it is. Please go look through it. I will stamp student assignments down here in our next talk two weeks from tonight, 16th of November, 730. See you then. <laughs>